Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our study through the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at verses 7 through 31. Uh, If you're new to the Bible or you don't own a Bible, uh, you can take that one in the pew there. There's a pew Bible you can take, uh, and you're going to find our study on page 170. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you're going to see some large numbers there and some small numbers as well. The large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers will be the verse numbers. Before we dive into our text, let us review a little bit of what we've done thus far. Uh, First, uh, the book is written after the death of Joshua. And Joshua was a great leader of the people of Israel. And Israel was faithful under his command. And they took some of the land. If you remember the story, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And so uh, they have begun taking a portion of the promised land under Joshua. Well, Joshua dies and he hasn't uh, set up a successor as Moses did because Joshua came after Moses to lead the people. But uh, Joshua didn't set up anybody after him. And he dies, and Israel finds itself without a leader. And it finds itself without a king. It's never had a king, but uh, part of the reason the book of Judges is written is to show us the need for a king in Israel. So Israel is leaderless. Second, we remember that judges is not about judicial judges. They're not adjudicating court cases. They're not in traffic court. They're not like Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown or even Judge Dredd, although they're closest to Judge Dredd now that I think about it. Uh, They're actually military leaders uh, that God uses to save Israel from her enemies. Thirdly, as we looked at the first two chapters of the book's introduction, we discovered that uh, maybe we can call it a pattern or a cycle that is going to repeat itself throughout Judges. And uh, last week, I based my outline on it. If you remember those three elements, we talked about the power of a good story, the nature of idolatry, and the mercy of judgment. The power of a good story, the nature of idolatry, and the mercy of judgment. And so what we see is the people forget the good story. They forget the power of the good story. And then they pursue idols. God judges the people. They cry out to God for deliverance. And then he raises up judges, these military leaders, to deliver his people, to save his people from their enemies. A good story has the power to grip our hearts and to consume our thoughts, to direct our very lives. But as we saw and will see, Israel as us is prone to forgetfulness. Anyhow, I'll do my best to point this pattern out to you as we work through each text each week. Um, So let's pray uh, before we get into the text before us this morning. Father, forgive us this morning. Forgive us if we have tried to add anything to the gospel. If we tried to grow by anything but grace. If we have relied consciously or unconsciously upon our own knowledge, our own experience, our own deeds, and not seen them as they truly are, as filthy rags. Lord, remove our tattered clothing and enable us, Spirit, to put on Christ. Help us to uh, ever remember the wonderful moment that we first saw Jesus and realized that he has appeased your wrath destroyed death, forgiven sin, and saved our souls. Spirit, be our teacher, our director, and our sanctifier this morning. Help us to see this text and help us to see Christ as great. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hirsch, if you have anything else on back there aside from me, would you go ahead and shut it off? I'm getting a little bit of feedback, just making sure. Okay, as long as I'm the only one that's hearing it, we're all right. I'll just be distracted. 
Anyhow, I hope that you're excited because I love walking through the book of Judges. I love, I love the Bible. I love going through books of the Bible, but I like some of those obscure stories that you usually uh, don't hear in church. Or even if you do hear them, it's in Sunday school when you kind of get like a truncated version. Like Noah and the ark, he gets all the animals onto the ark and everybody lives happily ever after. And they live out like the part where Noah gets off the ark and gets drunk and naked and all this crazy stuff that happens, right? They don't usually feature those portions on uh, the flannel graph. Uh, that's there in Genesis. You can check it out. Later, we're in Judges today. What I've done for us this morning is I've divided the text into two parts. First, verses 7 through 11, we're going to see a good judge, a good judge. And secondly, in verses 12 through 31, we're going to see an unexpected judge. If you're one that takes notes, usually I give you the little blanks there, but I was a a little under the gun this week. I stayed up all night with the teenagers Friday night, uh, which, you know, showed me I'm really, really older than I thought I was. Uh, but uh, I didn't get that done. But I did give you a blank sheet of paper in there to follow along. And so if you were to be filling in blanks, it would be a good judge. And then the second blank would be an unexpected judge. So first, let us look at the good judge. Verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, we shouldn't be surprised here from the get-go to see that the people of Israel are doing evil. After all, the introduction that we walked through the past two weeks forecasts that they would forget God and chase after idols. And so these two things together give us a picture of what exactly evil in the sight of the Lord is. And since God is our objective source, our objective standard of what good is, we can learn what evil, all evil is, and what it has at its center. You see, all evil is going to be characterized by a turning away from God or a forgetting of him and serving false gods or idols, counterfeit gods. So turning away from God and serving false gods. Now, it's important to note here that in Scripture, remembering and forgetting have a special spiritual significance, which I think Tim Keller helpfully points out. He says this, When people in the Old Testament ask God to remember your great mercy and love or to not remember our sins, they did not believe that God could literally forget what he is like. Or what someone has done. What it does mean then to forget or to remember is that when God is asked to remember your great mercy and love, he is being asked to act according to his character. When someone asks God to remember not my sins, he or she is asking that God would not act on what he knows. Therefore, to say that the Israelites forgot God is to say that they were no longer controlled by what they knew. See, the Israelites knew who God was and what he wanted. Loving obedience, affectionate obedience. And they actively chose to disobey God's command and do evil instead. The Israelites forget the power of a good story. Likewise, we forget the power of a good story when we forget the gospel story. And thus we are prone to choose these lesser pleasures in life and serve those false gods, the counterfeit gods, instead of Jesus. I mean, daily, routinely, we forget the gospel. There's a story I I heard in seminary and I've loved ever since about Martin Luther. If you're not familiar with Luther, he was a reformer uh, during the time of the Reformation. And uh, he he had finished preaching a sermon one Sunday and a couple congregants came up to him after. And they said, why do you preach the same thing, the same gospel week after week? And Luther responds to him and he says this, because week after week, you forget it. I love that because week after week, you forget it. And I think that it's so true. 
Week after week, we come together and we remember what Jesus has done. But weekly, daily, routinely, we forget it. Luther couldn't have been more right. See, we forget Jesus every time that we do anything without doing it unto his glory. Even things as simple as eating and drinking. You see, idolatry is always the twisting of or perverting of a good thing. We take that good thing and we allow our delight or our pleasure or our enjoyment to terminate or to finish simply with the enjoyment of that thing so that it functionally becomes our God. Let me try and give you an example. In fact, I'll use eating and drinking. Uh, A non-Christian and a Christian can both enjoy a nice filet mignon and maybe a nice glass of red wine. But the non-Christian, because he doesn't know Jesus, he doesn't eat and drink to the glory of God. And so his pleasure is only in the taste of the steak and, and the taste of the wine. It ends with the food and the drink. The believer, though, if he's remembering the gospel, if he's living out the gospel story, enjoys the same steak and the same wine. But his pleasure is exponentially greater because it doesn't just stop with the steak and with the wine. It continues up into, it rolls up into the worship of God, the giver of the food and of the drink. That's why the food and drink is there. So that we would enjoy it, yes, but that we would enjoy it unto God's glory. See, the believer enjoys the same meal and gives thanks with joy in his heart so that his satisfaction comes not solely from the gift, but ultimately from the gift giver, from God. My point is that when a follower of Jesus enjoys the same meal in the same way as a non-believer, if he doesn't allow it to roll up into worship of God, he has found the pleasure only in the meal itself. So that the meal is what becomes his true satisfaction rather than Christ. So anything that we find satisfaction in rather than Christ, that our ultimate satisfaction is based in, is an idol. Thus much of our lives are steeped in sin. Sin and slavery to lesser pleasures. Because the greater pleasure comes from joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. This happens because we forget God and we remove him from our activity. Let me try another illustration, perhaps. Uh, My son now is about six months old, and I look forward to uh, when he starts walking around a little bit and talking and uh, get the joy of teaching him new things and watching him experience new things. And uh, one of the things that I think would be especially fun is teaching him to swim. Now, my wife will tell you I am not a good swimmer, and I I sink like a rock, so uh, she'll probably be the one that teaches him to swim. But I'm going to be the one that stands in the pool where it's about waist deep and, and gets to the edge of the pool, imagine when he's one or so, and, and tells him, jump. You know, come on, man. Come on, just jump in the pool. There's nothing to be afraid of. Jump into my arms. And I'm sure that as most children, he'll be, you know, hesitant and do that thing. If you've ever seen a kid get into water where they walk right up to the edge and they look like they're about to do it, and then they just kind of scatter back away. They change their mind real quick. But eventually, hopefully, he'll have the confidence to, to run and to jump into my arms. And then I know, like most children, uh, After he makes that first jump, he'll just be excited to play in the pool. I want to do it again and again and again. Kids like that. Do it again. Do it again. Just excited to jump and enjoy the pool. However, at the age of, you know, about one years old or so, say we've played in the pool together, it would be wrong for him. Indeed, he would get in a great deal of trouble if he played in the pool without me or his mother there. You see, it would be dangerous. It would be deadly, in fact. 
You see, God has given us a myriad of extraordinarily good things, and they are to be enjoyed, but not without him. We're to enjoy the gifts of God with God. To enjoy them apart from him is very possible and it's very easy. It's a very dangerous idolatry. It's very deadly for our lives. Anything that you enjoy apart from God, you are enjoying instead of God. And it is a counterfeit God. Anything you enjoy apart from God, you are enjoying instead of God. And it is a counterfeit God. So let me ask you, what good gifts are you enjoying without him? Where have you forgotten to remember him? Something as simple as reading? Enjoying the movies or sporting events? An afternoon nap? Family? Food? Work? Where have you forgotten that true satisfaction comes only in Jesus? And only he can give life. What are you enjoying Apart from and instead of God. So we see Israel has turned away from God and they've forgotten him. And they begin serving these false gods, these lesser pleasures. They forgot the power of the story and they have begun to pursue idols. So if you're following the pattern, you know what's coming next. You know that God's merciful judgment that tests Israel and teaches Israel is coming next. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishthaim. I think I said that right. It's a hard one. Kushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim for eight years. God's anger results in the people falling under the hand of a Mesopotamian king. And eventually it causes them to sober up and to see clearly and to cry out to him for their deliverance. And thus, finally, after three weeks, we meet our first judge. Othniel. Actually, we met Othniel the first week. Uh, If you remember back in chapter 1, he's in Caleb's family, if you remember. Verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. See, God responds to Israel's cross. He sends Othniel, who is an ideal leader. And as the first judge, what we see in Judges is this pattern, right? With each judge, they kind of get a little bit worse. So if you maybe picture like a, a graph like this a little bit. And Othniel is going to be at the top of the graph. And then this cycle or this pattern of sin is going to repeat itself. And the next guy that comes is going to be, he's going to be an all right judge. But he's going to be a little bit more evil. Not as good as Othniel was. And then the guy after him, eh, he's not going to be as good as the guy before him. And it's just going to kind of slowly progress until at the end of the book of Judges, before we get into some of the anthologies that occur at the end there, we just have, we look at Israel and we go, man, this is a nation that is lost in sin, that is lost in apostasy. And so this first judge, Othniel, plays a paradigmatic role. He's the example of what the other judges should look like. We're to think very, very highly of Othniel. In fact, uh, the end of uh, verse 9 in chapter 3 reads, He saved him. And the who the he refers to is actually left unclear by the author. In order to remind us that God saves his people through his chosen leader. 
And that he can, the leader can both be said, and God are both said to bring salvation. It's deliberately ambiguous. And God uses Othniel to bring about a renewal and a fresh devotion to God. Under his leadership, Israel has rest for, for what, 40 years? The people have peace, I can't have to look, for 40 years. The peace of enjoying and serving God instead of slaving miserably for false gods. It comes only through God's own saving actions, through his judge in this case. But note that this episode does not end with peace, but with death. See, Othniel is a very good judge, but the peace that he brings cannot last. The peace will die with Othniel. See, Othniel shows us that God's people need a leader who does not die. God's people need the one who says of himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. The 40 years of peace that Othniel brought before his death cause us to thank Jesus Christ for the eternal peace that he brings us beyond his death. Friends, our Savior lives. Which brings us to the second portion of our text. An unexpected judge. Look with me at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So again, we see that Israel's doing evil. And God sends his merciful judgment so that Israel, the pattern of Israel is revealed again. They forget, they turn from God, and they lust after idols. He sends judgment in the form of this time of Moab and the king. And then he's going to send a deliverer as they turn back to him. His merciful judgment is again on display. Now we get into the fun story, I think. I love this story. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it to his right thigh underneath of his clothes. And he presented the tribute, that's just a gift, to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king commanded silence, and all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from you, or from God for you. The king arose from his seat. And Ehud said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No. Ehud reached with his left hand and he took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt of the sword also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And after that, the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open up the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead 
on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sariah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 40 years. And then verse 31 kind of gives us this unknown judge right quick. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. He doesn't get as much uh, detail as Ehud, but he is a judge, and that's all we're going to say of him. He's largely unknown. We don't know much else about him, and that verse is uh, pretty descriptive of him. Anyhow, back to Ehud. Man, that's a pretty crazy story. He's an interesting character, but he teaches us a lesson that we learn throughout all of Scripture, that God uses the weak and often the unexpected, sometimes even the unknown, like with Shamgar, right? He uses the left-handed people instead of the right-handed. See, Ehud is interesting because he is left-handed, and the author draws a lot of attention to that, um, because at this time, anybody that could fight used their right hand. Everybody in society used their right hand. Many people argue that uh, Ehud was um, either a great warrior who had learned to fight with his left hand, or that he had some kind of disease or handicap that made it so he had to use his left hand instead of his right hand. I like to go with a latter interpretation that says something was wrong with his hand. Uh, And so that brings more attention to the fact that, hey, you do not expect this guy uh, to be a deliverer. You don't expect this guy to be a mighty warrior. It's also interesting that uh, he's a left-handed guy from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin literally means son of the right hand. That is, the right-handed. So our hero is a lefty from the tribe of righties. That's funny. This story has actually got a lot of, it's a satire. The author wants us to laugh at it. So Ehud, the the left-handed from the right-handed tribe, is tasked with taking this gift to Eglon, the king of Moab. Because of his his left-handedness, he's not viewed as any type of security risk. So the security uh, screeners at Moab are likely federal workers and asleep at their stations. And so Ehud, he, he gets right on in. They don't even check him out. He's not a threat. Ehud and his friends deliver the gift. But before he leaves, he tells old, old Eglon, I have a very special secret. And Eglon tells him, yeah, hey, all right, I want to hear the secret. Let's go. And he sends everybody out of the room. And the secret present that he has, which we know from earlier on, is that dagger that's strapped to his, his thigh, right? The present is, in fact, his death. We then see Ehud lock the door and escape while all the king's horses and all the king's men wait outside the door until they realize that they can't put the king back together again. It's actually really funny. I love the line, they waited to the point of embarrassment because they think he, he's in there relieving himself. The Bible has all kinds of fun euphemisms, but they think he's in there using the restroom because, and I, the author also points out, like, after he had stabbed him, that dung was released. And so likely they're standing outside of the locked door and the smell is coming on and they're going, man, he's been in there a while. And It stinks. To the point where they get kind of like, all right, it's been a really long while. Are you doing the crossword? I don't know. Eventually they open the door and they find that he's dead. 
See, the author of Judges wants this text to, to be entertaining in this way. He's making a point twofold. One is to tell the story, but he also wants to make the point that as silly and as foolish as the people of Moab is, as stupid as they are, Israel is dumber. Israel is more stupid than the Moabites and their fat king because they continue to pursue idols instead of the God of the universe. What a good story. Although many people, for some reason, they don't, they don't like this story. They're unhappy about God's use of a trickster assassin, right? He's, he's tricky and he assassinates a king. So there are some ethical issues there, which we can talk about. I think those are fun uh, to work through. But God uses him. And we see in verses 28 through 30 that God was working through him to deliver Israel. See, God does not always work by what we might call normal or obvious methods. He freed his people, giving them triumph over their enemies and peace for 80 years through an unexpected leader and an unpredicted means. Ehud teaches us a familiar lesson about how God saves his people. His story reminds us of other unexpected heroes, Tamar and Rahab and a shepherd boy named David. The list goes on and on, but the point is already clear. God uses the humble. God uses the lowly. God uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. See, Ehud serves another purpose, to point us to the judge who had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, who is despised and rejected by men. He would also defeat the enemy alone. And like Ehud, he crushed his people's enemies through his weakness. Yes, Jesus was this unexpected Messiah. He delivered his people, not through great triumph, but through crushing defeat. Keller again offers his thoughts. In these historical narratives, then, God is showing the world that his salvation will not come in a Hollywood way. It will come from an outsider born in a manger, through weakness, not what the world calls strength, through defeat, not what the world calls victory, through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. We are not to make the mistake of Eglon, king of Moab. We're not to do the same things as he did as he looked at God's chosen deliverer and esteemed him not. We are to look at Jesus and see the power of God, the wisdom of God, unto salvation. It not only points us to Jesus, but he also points us to ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30 says this, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's you. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, the weak. That's you. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This shows us the truth of our relationship with God. Amazing grace. We have nothing to offer him. We have no chip to bargain with him. God, I, if you do this, I will do blank. No. Or God, if I do this, then you do this blank. No. We cannot manipulate God. We have nothing to give him. There's nothing in us that he should desire us. Yet he loves us according to his richness and mercy 
and grace. Consider your calling, friends. Consider what you were when you were called. Weak, nothing, a pauper. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. It is all of grace. Everything we have and everything we can hope to be is a result of what Christ has given. I hope this morning that this walk through Judges has given you a fresh picture of how God works in unexpected ways through good judges and through unexpected ones and even forgotten ones. I hope this week that you'll look for unexpected ways that God might move in your life. That you might remember your calling. That as God used the weak Ehud, he can use you. And as he called a weak people, he has called you to enjoy his grace and his mercy and his love. Friends, we have all earned death. We have nothing to offer God to make peace with him, except for pleading the blood of Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life and died the perfect death for you. But unlike Othniel, he didn't stay dead. He lives. And the question for you this morning, Christian and non-Christian, is do you know him? Non-Christian, you can know him this morning. Christian, have you forgotten him? I want to urge you to remember him. Will we continue daily to bend the knee and submit to his kingship? Will we follow him? Will we catch a fresh picture of his glory? Will we see and savor this king? How will you see and savor him afresh this week?